toward the last chapter. This is the last chapter of the book of Acts. And the next time I preach, I plan on completing it. And so as we, we come to the end, I, I just want us to remember a few points as we go into this, today's text, and pretty much all of the Acts, that this is a transitional time of the church, going from the apostolic era with a lot of miracles, a lot of healings, where Paul sets up and sets these churches and oversees it and guides them to the ordinary means of grace for the church, which is through the elders and the deacons guiding the churches. And that has been carried out through history right down to Altal here. We have that ordinary means of grace. Purcell and I aren't up here performing miracles. Anyways, I'm not. I'm, it's a miracle I'm up here, but I mean, it's... Uh, It's us trying to stay as close to the written word as we can. Representing the written word. We have that ordinary means of grace. You know, as we come, again, we're coming to the end of this book. And remember, Paul and his sailing companions, you know, they have been on a real trial for sea. Tossed by the power of the sea for 14 days. And these men had been, they'd given up any hope of being saved. You know, they couldn't eat. You know, I'd mentioned last time my dad, I forget if he was going to or coming back from World War II. And it was rough seas, and it took him eight days, and he said he was seasick every day. And I said, well, what about eating? He says, you couldn't eat. He says, you just literally could not eat. He says, you were lucky if you could even drink anything. He said, I forget how much weight he lost, but, I mean, he was, they were weakened. And he said what really frustrated him was the sailors on the ship were walking around like they were walking on a sidewalk, not even being bothered. And these ships are being, they were on a small transport, so they were being tossed in that by the waves. So it just gives us kind of the background. For 14 days, these guys have been, had no control of the ship being tossed, tossed around. But you know, our God is greater than all the trials this life will ever throw at us. These trials are for a purpose. All things work for good for those who love God. And we've seen already how Paul was a blessing to these men. He gave them hope, told them of the divine visit by an angel that none of them will be lost and they needed that hope he told them to eat something so you're going to need it and when the ship did break up those who could swim made it to shore and other men you know like cling to pieces of debris or barrels or whatever and no one was lost miraculously no one was lost just as the angel had told Paul Remember, they had only eaten one meal in days. Paul told them shortly before the ship ran aground that they should eat something. So they were indeed weakened after 14 days. I mean, not only were they not eating, they were probably seasick and throwing up all the time, probably dehydrated. 
And if anybody's ever been in cold water, you know how fast that can drain your energy. So these men were in pretty dire straits. They needed help and they needed it quick. They survived the sea. They were still in the threat of hyperthermia. They needed to get dry. They needed to get warm. They needed it fast. And unfortunately, as we get into the text, just the opposite happens in the beginning. It says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. So here they are, they dragged themselves out of the sea, and they all would have been wet, even those from the debris, because it, you know this storm was still raging. That's why the ship ran aground. They go, oh, great, we made it to shore, and now it's raining and it's cold. I mean, they must have thought, come on, can't we catch a break here? But you know what? Our God said none of them would perish. They weren't going to die. He brings his plan about. He does keep his promise. And here it is by the hand of strangers, these natives that lived on Malta, the non-believers, the pagans. What did they do? They showed us unusual kindness. Unusual kindness. Luke stresses this is out of the ordinary kindness. And remember, there's 276 men that need taken care of. So they kindled a fire. Some believe it was a bonfire outside, and other uh, commentators feel, no, they, they took them either to larger rooms and built the fires inside. And I tend to go with the ones where they took them inside because if that storm had been blowing that ship in that direction... For 14 days, rain, sleet falling, where would they get the dry wood to build a bonfire? But no, we do know that they built the fire for these guys to warm them. We know that for sure. God had burdened their hearts to take care of these strangers. God preserved them all. They needed this to avoid dying of hyperthermia, which can be deadly. Remember the one point? Does anybody remember that point that I said remember from last sermon? To warm them. We know that for sure. God had burdened their hearts to take care of these strangers because of the believer's sake. We are a blessing. God blesses those around us. We are a blessing to those around us. We are a blessing to our family when we live our lives out as godly Christians as we should. We are a blessing to the nation. Nations change and are blessed because of believers. They are not blessed. They do not change to the better because of pagans, no matter what rules they come up with or what rules they try to make to be good men. They cannot be good men away from God's law. 
God's law changes nations through people. We are a blessing to those around us. We are a blessing to those we witness to, even if they call us names and tell us, we don't like you talking about your religion. We are a blessing to them. The reason they don't want to hear it is because it bothers them. It burdens them because it is the tools they try to make to be good men. They cannot be good men away from God's law. God's law have eternal happiness with our Lord. If they refuse to, it's eternal damnation. We must never be embarrassed about our faith. We must be courageous in our faith because we are a blessing to the people. So it's cold and it's wet. And that would affect cold-blooded snakes. My girls liked catching snakes when they were younger. And so we knew if we'd go for a bike ride on a crisp fall morning, down, we'd go up by the Grand River down the, the path to the dam where you couldn't drive cars anymore. They shut the gates. We'd take our bicycles, and the snakes would be on the gravel trying to warm themselves. A lot easier to catch, a lot easier for the girls to look at. But they were sluggish. So now we're told this is winter months, cold, cold rain. Snakes are cold-blooded. They'd be sluggish. It tells us when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he put them on, his, on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. I believe also that is why this wood was probably inside. Like anybody who burns wood, you know, you have to keep it covered or it's outside under a lean-to or whatever. The snakes would be there. They don't like the cold rain. Wood piles attract mice, food for the snakes. As it was, Paul picked up, he wanted to help, picked up some of the wood. You know, vipers don't have to be big. Some are small, some are big, some are huge. But nonetheless... I believe this snake was sluggish, hiding in the wood pile, wrapped in there. And when Paul picked it up, and that snake got a little heat on its tail, it kind of irritated it, and it latched onto his hand. You know, notice Paul doesn't appear to panic. He shakes it off into the fire, and it seems that he just keeps on going as if nothing had happened, which is unnatural if you're bit by a snake or don't like snakes. I know from experience, uh, I worked with a guy from Texas, down there there's rattlesnakes, water moccasins, and he said uh, he was going fishing one day, and he watched because the water moccasins like it along the shore. And right when he was stepping down, he saw one coiled, pulled his leg off to the side. The thing struck, and it got in by the blue jeans. And snake, they have, you know, their fangs, they come out like that, and then they retract them. They're hinged. And it hinged the fangs back and got stuck on his jeans. And all it had was his jeans. And in his words, he said, I shook so much, my britches came down. And I said, well, how long was it on your pants? He said, it seemed like a long time. He said, but it was only a few seconds probably. He said, but I know when it was done, 
He said, my pants were down to my knees and my belt wasn't unbuckled. <laughs> I mean, you can get real motivated. And my friend hated snakes. And we were trout fishing in a clear stream and water snakes like to sit on the brush piles going across the stream. And he was downstream and I happened to see one and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to fish from the other side of that brush pile. And, you know, we also have our secondary motives. And I thought the means of escape for these pine snakes it was, and it was a nice one, you know. And it's either they slither off to the grass or they dive into the stream. And they swim on the, down the stream. And this, my friend hated snakes. He was terrified of them. So I thought, well, you know, well, we'll just see what the snake decides. So I went up on the upper end, and the snake dove in and was coming right down the crystal clear stream only about that deep, and he's standing there with his back to me, and I thought, well, I'll wait till it gets a little closer, then I'll tell him to look down. <laughs> so I did, and he turned around and looked down, and I don't know if, if there was Olympic competition for jumping out of a trout stream with hip boots on and doing a half turn and landing on shore and running 20 yards through the willows, he would have won. I mean, he was shook so bad he couldn't even remember my name. He was calling me all kinds of things. and I tried to declare my innocence. He didn't buy it. But, I mean, that's how people react to snakes. I know, I, like I say, the girls like catching snakes. And one time, they, it was fall like this. We had pumpkins and that on the front porch. And the girls were only like five or six. And I walk out there. and it's, it's, They're not grass snakes. They look like grass snakes. But there's some other name when they get bigger. I said, oh, there's a big snake. I just saw it go in by the pumpkins. Oh, we're going to get it. And so Sarah, I think it was Sarah. She's in there, and she sticks her hand there. Oh, it bit me. And then, oh, it bit me again. Oh, I got it this time. And it was 38 inches long. And I said, I'll just go throw it in the garden. And they said, oh, we're going to show our neighbor Marlene. And I didn't know she didn't like snakes. And so they went over and knocked on her door. And she comes to the door, and she was in her 60s. And they hold up this 38-inch snake. It was like they held up the fountain of youth. I'd never seen her move so fast. <laughs> Saw her go through her kitchen, through her living room, and disappear. She didn't talk to me for a month, and her husband, every time he brought it up, he couldn't do it with a straight face, so I don't know what was said inside. But That's how people act when they're terrified of these animals, these snakes, and especially a deadly viper. So when these native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He however, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds. They said, oh, this guy's a god. Right away, you know, like many of us, we can come to conclusions, wrong conclusions about somebody quickly. That's a bad person. They're dressed like this or whatever. I mean, we can judge people and be completely wrong. That's what they do. You know, this guy, he's a murderer. And see, one of their gods was uh, the god Nemesis, or the goddess Nemesis, the goddess of, of uh, retribu retribution or judgment. That's one of the gods that they worshipped. 
So they concluded that, you know, this nemesis is going to get Paul because, you know, he escaped from the sea, but he's not going to escape this God. That's why we say somebody who gives us a, a difficult time in our lives is a nemesis. It comes from this. But you don't notice the element and truth even in these pagan beliefs? Divine retribution, divine judgment. You see, even though they suppress the truth and bring up their own imaginations, gods of their own imaginations, there's always that element of truth in, in their hearts. They're suppressing it. They can suppress it, but they cannot get rid of it. They will never be able to completely erase God's truths. That's why the scripture says they suppress it. They do everything they can to avoid it so they continue to live, so they can continue to live the way they want to. But that truth is still in them. And that's why each and every time we act as a believer or witness as a believer, they see God's truth either played out in our lives or presented to them, and they, they, it, they have to keep suppressing it because what they're trying to suppress is being brought up. That's why many who wish to stay with their lawlessness hate Christians so much because we're a reminder of the truth, God's truth. Even when we stand against abortion and they don't even know us or anything, it brings up that truth that life is valuable. And it angers them because they're trying to suppress it to cover up their own sin, their own guilt. And the more believers they see in a society, the harder they have to work to suppress that truth. That's why it's so important that we are involved in every area of life. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is not one thing in this life where we as believers do not have the answer for it. So whatever your children want to go in, you should encourage them to go in it with a godly character. I don't care any area of society, the harder they have to work to suppress that truth. That's why it's so important that we are involved in 1817. It tells us, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And what Mark is saying in that is, it's not just these things, it's God's protection is around his people. God's protection is on his people. Nothing will happen to us if God does not want it to happen. You know, this serpent was sent by God for a specific reason. It was for a miraculous healing before anything even happened to him. As with all miracles, it was to demonstrate to the people of Malta that Paul was a godly man and that his message was worth hearing. It was the apostolic era. And that's what miracles were for. Not to advance Paul, 
in himself, but to advance the gospel and the church. Not to make the minister wealthy with selling little trinkets that, oh, just buy this and it might heal you, you know. It was for Paul to advance God's kingdom, just like God uses us to advance his hand, and that his message was worth hearing. It was the apostolic era. And that's what miracles were for. And many times it will be protection from deadly harm. God will not allow his church, his people, to be removed from this earth until their day is up and it's only by God's allowing it, calling us home. The devil is on a leash and it's controlled by God and it's got a big shock collar on you and if that devil tries to go too far, it says, yep, there's no way he can. You know, Stonewall Jackson, he was a general in the Civil War, godly man, and people marveled at his courage and asked him why, and he said, well, I'm as comfortable on the battlefield as I am in my own bed. He said, if a bullet takes me, it's only by God's will. He says, nobody's, paraphrasing, but nobody will hit me, or I will not die. He says, my days are numbered, my time for this earth is fixed. He said, so why should I worry? Then he added something else, which I think is all believers must live this way. He said, I wish it was that way with all men, because then they would have courage. They wouldn't be worrying about, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? We're in the will of God. What if persecution comes? We're still in the will of God, just like Paul was. Well, I may die. Yeah, you may die. We're all going to die. But it's only when our appointed time comes. Not before. We can't add. We can't detract. It doesn't call us to be stupid and think we're Superman and stand in front of a train and go, won't work. But we're in God's hands. And unfortunately, even some of the good the churchmen, the godly men, take these verses to try to advance themselves. I mean, over my lifetime, I've seen or read about three or four times where pastors, they like handling these deadly snakes. Priscilla, don't have me do that. I won't, you know. But how many times they get bitten and they die? I remember one, it was the two pastors and two elders. They not only handled them, they said, we're godly men, so we're going to fasten them on our wrist. Which they did, and there was four widows made that day and a lot of orphans. We cannot tempt God. They were advancing themselves. Danger will come. God's protection will come, but we cannot tempt God by trying to promote ourselves. Don't worry, there's plenty of dangers out there. You don't have to go around carry snakes around, deadly snakes. He does extend miraculous blessings even to his saints today. We have a, protect, a protective netting around us. And when God removes that netting, we will die. We may be imprisoned. We may go through difficulty, difficult trials doesn't mean God has abandoned us. He is with us. 
and our days are fixed. If he wants us dead, we're dead. Again, but we must not be careless. We must be wise as serpents because we're walking among deadly snakes, deadly people. But this viper attached to Paul's hand for these people of Malta to see for a specific task, and it worked. It worked. Usually vipers hit quick and pull back. But I think because of the cold, they're sluggish. It was on the sticks, just latched on. Paul probably shook it a few times down in the fire. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to them, they changed their minds. They said that he was a god. Now, I've seen pictures on the Internet. I looked up people bitten by snakes and that. I mean, you get bitten in the leg, your look, leg looks like a a balloon. I mean, you'd swear if you take a pin and poked it, it would pop. I mean, it's just uh, what that toxin does. But these believers, they'd rec- they did recognize divine intervention. This is out of the ordinary. They're used to snakes. They're used to seeing people swell up and die from snake bites. That's why they can describe it. But again, this was miraculous healing before it even started to poison Paul to open the door that Paul could start and share the gospel on this city of Malta. And they have already been doing that out of the ordinary. They're used to snakes. They're used to seeing people swell up and die from snake bites. That's why they can describe it. God was burdening their hearts. So how do you think that it would go for Paul now with these people that they think he's a god? And we know Paul would tell them that they're not because that's already happened before. They wanted to make them say they're gods and sacrifice to them. They refused it. But again, God has taken care of Paul but now these people of Malta are saying, well, and all these people on the ship with them, and nobody got hurt, and nobody died, which is unusual from a shipwreck. I mean, uh, Josephus records that he was in a shipwreck, and it carried 700 passengers. And out of the 700, I think it was like 40-some survived. So just the fact that all these men survived was unusual. But I think this little snake event had far-reaching effects on the people of Malta. And Paul and his companions are the guests of the Roman governor. Because now in the neighboring neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Many of the commentators feel that this uh, was the Roman governor of the island. Remember, this is Roman territory. He probably heard about their survival, which was miraculous. There were some Roman soldiers on the ship. They would have been taken care of irregardless. They probably heard, yeah, this guy was bit by a deadly snake, and he just shook it off in the fire and didn't hurt him. We think he's a god. So this guy took care of them, most likely a few days, so that they could find food and lodging. Remember, 276, 
And they would be lodging for three months, the winter months. You know, according to historians, the shipping ended in November. And it would start about February 8th. So these guys would have to be food and sheltered for three months. 276 men. It's a lot of people. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. So again, God is working through Paul in miraculous ways, but it's for the verification of the gospel that Paul's a godly man. And I'm sure we know the character of Paul He's sharing and witnessing to all these people. This is direct intervention in Paul's life. Apostolic era. But again, they're going to be there three months. People are, seems like they're bending over backwards to house and feed them, make sure they're comfortable. These miracles did play a big part in it. Again, though, it demonstrates how we are a blessing to the people around us. They're taking care of all these men. Maybe it is out of fear. Well, these guys are with Paul. We've got to take care of them or Paul might get hacked off. I mean, he can heal people. They're probably thinking maybe he can whack people too just by saying it. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Again, God is providing for Paul to get to Rome, but he's blessing all these other men as well. They put on board all that we needed. They supplied provisions, because these guys, they'd be sailing off again. And many other people were blessed because they came and they were cured by Paul. And I'm sure they received a portion of the gospel each time people came. They put on board all that we needed. It brings out the best in men, even in non-believers, when they see the influence of other people of Christians, but we must demonstrate a Christian walk in our lives. It brings out the best of others. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Notice again, they were confined. After three months, There was another ship. Remember, their ship, the first one they were on was a ship from Alexandria. That was a ship from Egypt. They had 276 people. Here's a ship already equipped and already has its crew and passengers. So there might be another 200 or so or 300 on that ship, yet it has room for 276 more. These ships, these sailing vessels were huge. Many, there are some historians tried to say, well, they weren't that big of ships in that year. I've read articles concerning 
that and there's they were ships that carried thousands. They had some of these battleships, they had three rows of oarsmen. Some of the oars were forty feet long. Because they'd use not they'd use the sail, but then when in battle they'd use these to ram other ships. So there's no doubt the historical record shows that there were ships plenty big enough to carry a thousand men and more. But we see here this ship, and we see the mythology. It has, uh, it says, uh, with the twin gods as a figurehead. You know, they put the in the front of the ship the figurehead to protect the ship. The twin gods are Castor and Pollux. You know, they're both the sons of Zeus. Mythology says with different mothers. And one of their assigned tasks was that they are the gods of the sea, the gods of mariners. They protect mariners and ships. And also they attach these two gods to the two stars of Gemini. They worship the stars, thought the stars influenced their lives and guided them. How foolish. I mean, oh, wait a minute. We see all those horoscopes in the papers today. I mean... There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. If they don't worship the true God, they look for God in many other things. Here in the stars. So they put in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days. That's on the island of Sicily. So they're back sailing again. But this ship is exchanging cargo. Again, like I said, these ships wouldn't go on a straight line. They'd deliver, pick up cargo. And this was a large ship, so it would only go to the deep, deep harbor ports. There's no mention of Christians or believers at this port. You know, the legends have that Paul did a lot of things there and that. But we'll just stick to the text because some of that legend is just legend that uh, part of the legend was that Paul drove the snakes off of Malta, you know, just like uh, St. Patrick drove them out of Ireland. So I think it was more, uh, if there's no snakes now there, it's because of the development of the nation, you know. And there we made a circuit. Notice he's saying we made a circuit. So they're going around, picking up cargo, dropping off people, and arrived at Figium. That's... Uh, and that after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patoli. Again, it's making its business. Regium is about the ankle of the foot of Italy, heading up toward Rome. Naples would that be that region today. And from there, they made the final leg of the journey, which is Patoli. And there, Paul does find believers. Again, we see that while the church is spreading out, and it, it's not that these areas are saturated with believers, but there's believers in there influencing these cultures, influencing, growing. There we found brothers and were invited to be that region today. And from there they made the final leg of the journey, which is Patoli. And there that Paul is allowed freedom to be with these people. He has a guard with him, chained to him 24 hours a day. 
He said the guards did four-hour shifts, but wherever Paul wanted to go, they had to go. How many of those guards did you think we'll see in heaven? As Paul is discipling these churches to the most basic Christianity, to the deepest things of the faith, because again, this is a transfer time from the apostolic era to the normal means of the church. You know, this Julius has seen something in Paul. He has allowed him to go freely with one guard. Do you think some of Paul's, uh, these saints were kind of saying to Paul, hey, you know, we can whack this one guard and you can be free. Paul probably gave this guy his word and he's going to go to Rome and this guy's given him unusual freedom. Even the wicked, when they see the nature, the true nature of Christians, and we're true to our word continually, they see something in us where they know they can trust us. That's how we should live our lives. And it probably took seven days because at Patoli, they would now be going to Rome by land because Patoli was the uh, uh, deep water harbor closest to Rome. And I think it was about 100 and some miles, 140 miles away from Rome. So they'd be transferred this stuff out of the ships on the wagons. And usually this cargo was protected. And because there were Roman soldiers and this Julius and his guys, I said, they're heading to Rome. There'd be a commander at Patoli, and he probably said, well, we'll just unload the ship and you guard the cargo to Rome. Is one of the possibilities. But anyway, seven days. And remember, even though these were deep water harbors, a lot of times it wasn't where they dredged the harbors where these big ships could come right up next to shore. All the stuff, the cargo would be shuffled back and forth in the ship's boat. or many boats. So it takes seven. There'd be a commander at Patoli, and he probably said, Well, we'll just unload the ship and you guard the cargo to Rome. And again, next time we'll conclude our study on the book of Acts. But I think, again, what we're seeing here is we are, that Paul and the few saints that are with him are a blessing to others. And God will advance his church, the gates of hell will not stand against it. And each and every one of us play a part in that. Remember, it says we're, we're assigned a task, a work to do before the beginning of time for each believer. We're not here by accident. We're not here at this time of history by accident. You're not in this church by accident. There's a purpose. There's a task that God is using you for. It also says the body is many parts. We all have different tasks. I have a hard enough time figuring out my tasks, so don't ask me to figure out yours. Talk to God about that. He'll reveal it to you. But we must mature and do our part at this time of history to advance God's kingdom. That's our duty, and that's a certainty. Let us pray.